I just pray again for your your blessed anointing. Uh, that this is a this is a message that's so near and dear to my heart that I've I've spoken so many times in so many different ways. I pray that tonight that you would uniquely uh, speak it through me to these people. You know who they are, where they are, what they need. So I just surrender right now to you, Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would do your job in the wonderful, marvelous, powerful way that you do it and impact lives and uh, that people be changed, that your word would go forth and it would bear fruit and the fruit would remain. Uh, and I ask all of these things in, in Jesus' name. And I, amen. All right, well, you remember uh, Caleb and Catherine, right? Let's check out a conversation that Caleb had with his friend before Christ. Forty days. Catherine, no? I'm not going to tell her. If she wants to go ahead and file, that's up to her. Divorce is a hard thing, man. Well, if it brings peace. But Caleb, you want the right kind of peace. What do you mean by that? Do you know what that ring on your finger means? It means I'm married. Yeah, well, it also means you made a lifelong covenant. You were putting on that ring while saying your vows. The sad part about it is when most people promise for better or for worse, they really only mean for the better. Catherine and I were in love when we got married. But today, <clears throat> we're two very different people, all right? It's just not working out anymore. Caleb, <clears throat> salt and pepper are completely different. Their makeup is different, their taste and their color. But you always see them together. And when you... Hold on just a second. What are you doing? Michael. Hey. What'd you do that for? Caleb, when two people get married, it's for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. I know that. But marriages aren't fireproof. Sometimes you get burned. Fireproof doesn't mean that a fire will never come, but that when it comes, you'll be able to withstand it. <clears throat> you didn't have to glue them together. Don't do it, Caleb. If you pull them apart now, you'll break either one or both of them. I am not a perfect person, but better than most. And if my marriage is failing, it is not all my fault. But Caleb, man, I've seen you run into a burning building to save people you don't even know. But you're going to let your own marriage just burn to the ground. Michael, you are my friend. And I've allowed you to speak freely with me on this job. Don't abuse it. Hmm. Mission impossible. Your mission, Todd, Johnny... Betty, Frank, whoever you are, should you decide to accept it, is to love this person that you're marrying or that you're married to for the rest of your life, for better or worse, in sickness or in health, for richer or poorer, till death parts you. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of your obvious gender and personality differences, and in spite of the fact that they, more than anyone else in your life, will trigger your wounds and get under your skin more than you ever dreamed possible, even after you or they can't or don't want to be sexually intimate anymore, and you get old and fat. Do you accept? 
Problem number five. Covered one problem per session. This is session number five. Mission impossible. Problem number five. As I see it, marriage, our way, without Jesus, doesn't work. My wife and I have been married 28 years and we've gone through a lot of things. We've covered a lot of ground, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of hurt, a lot of work, a lot of therapy, a lot of Bible study, a lot of crying out to God, going through stuff, deep, dark valleys coming out of them. And I'm I'm glad that we've stuck with it. But the sad reality is uh, probably about 55% of all marriages now end in divorce. According to the U.S. Census, from 1960 to the year 2000, which is about 12 years ago, the divorce rate in our country increased by 400%. And it hadn't gotten any better in the last 10 years. Marriages are crumbling. Families crumbling. So to me, there's no way that our country can't crumble. Because the family is the foundation that our country is built upon. And if marriages don't survive, families don't survive, communities don't survive, states don't survive, the country doesn't survive. The family falls, the country falls. The world falls. And the thing is, many times Michelle and I have have talked about this and because I do counseling for a living and she's been a part of the ministry for as long as I have and we see a lot of couples and a lot of marriages and you know some of them are restored and healed and some of them in spite of our best efforts don't make it I had some really tough sessions this morning wondering if they're going to make it and uh, it grieves me and it, it, it's very, very difficult to watch it happen. And I know that some of you have gone through it yourselves. Maybe you've been through a marriage or two. Maybe you've gone through a separation or divorce right now. Maybe you have friends or, you know, or kids. You, uh, you're watching, you know, you, 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 you grew up in a home where, where it happened. And it, it's just, the effects are just devastating. And it's not to say that every every marriage can be saved because I don't think it it necessarily can be. Sometimes there's situations beyond your control. And it takes two people to make a marriage work. You know, there's, there's, there shouldn't be any shame uh, associated with divorce because you don't know the whole story. And unless you know the whole story, you can't sit in judgment. I certainly don't sit here in judgment. Um. I don't know why I feel moved to say this, but uh, you all know the story of David. You know, King David, a man after God's own heart, committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had five wives at the time. We don't often preach on that. It's not really a, a topic, you know, preach, preach on polygamy. The fact that King Solomon had over 600 wives. Imagine doing marriage counseling back in those days. You don't do marriage counseling. You just ask for a different wife. <laughs> I don't want to deal with that one. Come on, take number two. The Scripture says that the king should have one wife. It was never God's intent that it be that way. And then not to make matters worse, David sees a woman bathing, finds out who it is. It's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. One of his mighty men who's out in battle defending his honor, and he still takes her. And when she turns up pregnant, he tries to cover it up and uh, calls Uriah the Hittite back from battle for a report, figures he'll go sleep with his wife, you know, and maybe the baby will come a little early, but nobody will know. Well, Uriah the Hittite, being a man of honor, doesn't go back to his wife. That night, he sleeps on the, on the palace steps. So the next night, plan B, let's get him drunk. Certainly, he'll go back and sleep with his wife. Don't happen. So we've got to resort to plan C. Plan C is David writes a little note to Joab, commander, 
He says, let Uriah Hittite be put up on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest and then withdraw the troops and let him be struck down. Closes the note, seals it with the king's seal, gives it to Uriah, which is basically his death sentence. Says, take this back to Joab. Gives him a hug and a kiss. Thank you. And Joab follows the king's orders as they did back then. Don't question it. Uriah the Hittite struck down. Bathsheba goes through her mourning period. And then David, playing the, the noble king to come and care for the poor widow, takes her as his wife. Cover up complete. Watergate. Not. Na- uh, uh, Nathan, the prophet, comes tells David a little story about a guy that had a bunch of sheep, but uh, took one little sheep from a poor guy. And David said, this is horrible. That man should pay back four times what he's worth. And Nathan looks at him and he says, you're that man, David. And uh, David was caught. He said, I have sinned against God. Um, I, I did this terrible thing. And... David had pronounced his own judgment. Judge not lest you be judged. Says you pay back four times what was owed. So the judgment of God against that sin, terrible sin. Really, the old old covenant, remember we talked about last time? He should have been stoned. He and Bathsheba. But God forgave him. He forgave him. Absolutely forgave him. And God's forgiveness and grace continued. But the judgment, the consequence of that sin was, number one, the child born by Bathsheba will die. Number two, the very thing you did in secret is going to happen in your own household. Two of his children by different wives, it was incest. Uh, Tamar and uh, uh, Amnon had sex with Tamar. And... uh, and then he said, also, one's going to rise up. And then what happened is Amnon ended up getting killed by uh, Absalom, who was Tamar's brother. And then one from your own household is going to rise up against you and try to overthrow you. Absalom was killed in the process. And then he said, the fourth thing is the sword will never leave you. Heavy duty, consequences. But God never left David. God forgave David. God continued to bless David. God continued to be with David. And you know what? Interesting that the Messiah would come through the house of David. Of the six wives that David had, Bathsheba being number six, which one did the bloodline of the Messiah come from? Who was Bathsheba's next child? Does the name Solomon mean anything to you? Solomon means shalom. It comes from a word meaning shalom, peace, grace be unto you. That's heavy. To me, that's that's a pretty gracious, unbelievable God. So there's no judgment. There's no shame in, in divorce and when marriages don't work. There's a lot of circumstances that come come to play. Uh, People can do wrong things and make poor choices and things can happen and they get divorced. We should not judge people that get divorced. Judge not lest you be judged. You know, but the fact is, I'm just telling you, Michelle and I talk about it all the time. How do people make it without Jesus? How do marriages survive without the power of God? How do marriages survive without people having Jesus Christ living inside of them? Without the grace and the power of God? How can I love my wife the way I'm supposed to and her love me the way that she's supposed to? How can we even have a marriage? I I just have no clue how people even do it. I know what they do. They medicate themselves. They escape. They live in denial. And they end up in my office. 
or they just have affairs and get divorced and leave the wreckage behind. What is the solution to this problem? This plague that literally has swept our country. The solution is simply follow God's plan for marriage. Follow God's plan for marriage. And it's a very simple plan. I could teach a whole weekend on it, but I'm just going to take about 20 minutes. And what I'm going to do is I want to look at one of the longest, most explicit teachings in the Bible that describe God's plan for marriage as I understand it. And out of that passage, I want to draw four points that I want to give you. Because if you accept this mission, mission impossible, stay married for life, it it looks impossible, quite frankly. When you look at all the factors, when you look at what's going on, when you look at people's lives, the wounds, the sin, the culture, it looks impossible. But you know what? Every single episode of the old Mission Impossible and all of the new movies, which I have seen because I love movies, They call it Mission Impossible, but you know what? They always find a way to do it. So it becomes Mission Possible. Jesus was asked one time in a different context, in a different setting about a different subject, well, then who can be saved? And he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. There is nothing impossible with God. I've seen God turn around the the most unbelievably horrendous situations that you could imagine. I've seen Him change a heart that seemed so hard and melt it. He's done it with me. He's done it with my wife. He's done it in my marriage, and I've seen Him do it in countless other marriages. Does it happen in every marriage? Absolutely not. But I want to give you four things that are very simple things Not necessarily easy things, but they can be done by the power and the grace of God. And I believe that they give us the solution to this problem about marriage not working. Can help us stay married for life. Can help us not make it mission impossible, but with God all things are possible. Amen? So the passage is one y'all are all familiar with, Ephesians 5, 17-33. And we don't usually talk about the whole passage, okay? And as I said, there's so much in this passage that I'm not going to be able to teach on. That's why I told you about my book, Married Happily Ever After. I hope you'll get the book and take advantage of it and read it. Many of the sections that I'm not going to have time to cover because there's a lot in there that's really impactful and and powerful that will have an impact, hopefully, on your marriage and your life. But the part of this passage that we usually focus on which I'm actually going to de-emphasize tonight, is the part about the wife submitting to the husband and the husband being the head of the wife. That's the part that we usually focus on. That gets the jabs going. That gets, you know, that gets all the dander up and it can be controversial. But I'm actually not going to focus on that part as much as I'm going to focus on four other parts that to me are just as important, perhaps even more important. But I want to read through the whole passage and stop at different points And we're going to make our four points. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to start way back up there because it's it's pretty important. Verse 17. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Have you ever wondered what God's will is? Have you ever wondered, like, grapple with, what is your will for me in this, Lord? Well, right here it's saying... You know, Paul is writing, he's saying, do not be foolish. In other words, be be wise, understand what the Lord's will is. I'm getting ready to tell you precisely what it is. So you don't have to guess about it. Verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, spirits, which leads to debauchery, which means excess. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. I want to just stop right there to make point number one. Point number one is be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit, not spirits that get you drunk. 
Okay? Point number one is be filled with the Spirit. So, and I'm not going to get off into some controversial. There's so many areas I could get in trouble in in this passage. It's not even funny. (laughs) I could get thrown out of churches for saying certain things. But I just want to say this, okay? Because it mentions it right here. It says, do not get drunk on wine. While drinking itself may not be wrong for everyone or considered wrong by everyone, different churches believe different things, different denominations believe different things, different Christians believe different things. Drunkenness is clearly a sin and wrong in God's eyes. So we could talk about what does it mean to get drunk? Okay, well, I got a whole book on that subject. Family Week and Beyond, the true story of my family's triumph over alcohol and drug addiction. You got an issue about this, you think you might have an issue about this, or your spouse thinks you have an issue of it. Anybody has ever, even remotely, in your life had an issue with it, or you've had an issue with them with it, I would highly recommend this book. When I was 19 years old, my dad was forced into an alcoholism treatment center, 1979, CDU of Baton Rouge. And during the fourth week of his 28-day treatment stay, we were all asked to go in for family week from 8 to 5, Monday through Friday. You don't, you don't see that done a lot anymore because insurance is controlling the treatment center industry. But that week changed my dad's life and our lives forever and is part of the reason I am who I am today because my dad got sober and stayed sober till he died 15 years later. Uh, Because of that, I went into the field of, of psychology and became a counselor. Because of that, two years after my dad's treatment, I got sober. Okay, and now have a specialty in that area. It has totally shaped and changed and radically affected my life. And for 25 years, I always wanted to write a book on that. And so eventually, you know, a few years ago, with great effort, took me about three years, wrote it. And it was a very difficult book for me to write because it touched, it, it was so emotional for me this week and what I was writing about, plus the fact that my dad had died and And, but the way that I wrote the book is as a story. It's almost like written like a novel. And the story is of my family going through family week. And you, you, you see all the characters. I mean, you meet the counselors. The counselors give lectures. We're in the group. You, you get the interactions between the characters. And what I tried to do was set the story back when we went through treatment in 1979 but take all the information that I've learned in the last 25 years about alcoholism and drug addiction and what I know about helping people and convey it to the reader through the story. So, all I want to say to you is that there's a lot that I have to say about that. And if you even think you might have an issue with it, maybe you ought to read the book. I think you'll enjoy it and I think it'll challenge you and it'll give you a perspective and it's not going to be what you think it is. Uh, the second part of the book, uh, it's called Family Week and Beyond. The, the majority of the book, the first 10 chapters are about Family Week, us going through Family Week and what that was like and what we learned and how it changed our lives and a lot about alcoholism and drug addiction. The, the last four chapters are the Beyond part. That's kind of like the rest of the story. What happened to Dad after he went through treatment, up until his death, all the ups and downs of his life, how I got sober, and then later found Christ. And it kind of chronicles our each of our spiritual, personal growth journeys. Two different paths kind of ending up in the same place. And um, there's a whole lot there about my personal testimony that's not shared in any other materials that I have that would really touch someone uh, that might be struggling with that. And if you work with people that that deal with this issue. It could also help you and give you some good tools. So, back to the verse. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to excess. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So, what I want you to also do 
is keep in mind that alcohol is not the only thing that we can be filled with that's bad for us. Okay? Uh, there's all kinds of other addictions. Uh, you know, there's work, TV, computer, internet, iPhone, Facebook. Did I say Facebook? Did I say the iPhone? The iPad? Do not be filled with wine. Do not be filled with anything that leads to excess, but be filled with the Spirit. All addiction, all compulsive addictive behaviors, bottom line, is following a spiritual calling but going to the wrong address. G.K. Chesterton once said, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is really looking for God and doesn't know it. I just read one of the, the best books that I've ever read on the subject of pornography and surfing the Internet, uh, which is what millions of millions of people have problems with these days. A lot of people we don't even know about. It's called Surfing for God, written by a guy named Michael Cusick. I think I mentioned it before. And the subtitle, Surfing for God, means surfing the web, is discovering the divine desire beneath your sexual struggle. In other words, there are legitimate needs and things that you're trying to get met, but you're going to the wrong address. Do not be filled with wine or with anything for that matter, which leads you the wrong way, which leaves you feeling empty, but be filled with the Spirit. So point number one is be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean, be filled with the Spirit? We, I would say most people would call this a spirit-filled church. Okay? And again, this is one of those areas where I could actually go through the Bible and teach it and get into really heated arguments with other Christians who believe in the Bible. Alright, so I don't want to do that. All I want to say to you is that think about for a minute. When Jesus first appeared to his disciples, they were in a closed room, and he kind of popped through the wall after his resurrection. And he said, peace be with you. Does anybody know what the next thing that happened was? Raise your hand. What did he, what did he do? And he said what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Remember he... Remember in the in the in the garden he breathed on he breathed in he, he got some dirt and he God's breath breathed on the dirt and life came into it. So something happened there. I don't know exactly what happened, but they they received the Holy Spirit. He said he breathed on them, he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? So then he hangs around for forty days, then he ascends before them and he says, Go and wait for the promise. And then in Acts chapter 2, they're all there and the whole place is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like they're immersed in this incredible experience, which most people would refer to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was something different than what they got in that room. And some of them were falling down, looked like they were drunk. Some of them were speaking in tongues. And people were hearing in their own native language from men who didn't have that language speaking the things of God. It was an incredible, unbelievable thing. And then Peter goes to the Gentiles, and the same thing happens to them when he shares the gospel. So then that's something different. But that's not even what this means. This, this phrase right here doesn't mean either one of those things. Be filled with the Spirit. means be being filled with the Spirit. Literally, that's what it means. Be continuously filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. There are some people that come to church, not even just this church, but many churches that would be considered Spirit-filled churches, charismatic churches, and they look on Sunday like they're filled with the Spirit. But if you followed them home an hour or two later, or a couple of days later, whatever they were filled with is gone because it don't look like they're filled with the Spirit anymore. It looks like they're filled with some other stuff. 
or, or at least they leaked. It, whatever they were filled with at church, it leaked out because it ain't there no more. So how do you explain that? You explain that by understanding this verse. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Last week, I shared the gospel. Okay? Basically, and I, I gave an invitation for people to receive Christ. And just to let you know, when I, I said, if you never prayed that prayer before, come and get a book. You know, 32 people responded to the gospel. That means 32 people said yes to Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. And depending on your theology, you know, whether you believe in a baptism of the Holy Spirit, I can tell you this, there's more than what you got when you received Jesus Christ. There's way, 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 way more. When you got married to your spouse, was that it? When you put the ring on? I mean, when you experienced love, you didn't even really know what love is. You don't even find that out until later. There's way, 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 way more to go. Way, way more God's got for you. Okay? But if you prayed that prayer, you came and got this book, Jesus Christ came to live inside of you. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have the same power that raised Christ from the dead living inside of you. You are now metaphorically hooked up to the Internet before you were operating on your little 12-gig hard drive. Okay? Now you are hooked up to the limitless supply of information and power on the internet. But you know what? What you got to do to get the internet to flow through your computer? It's hooked up now. You got a subscription, lifetime guarantee. You hooked up. What you got to do? You got to dial in. You got to get online. Right? Keep that in mind as I share this verse with you. This verse, to me, more than any other thing, explains what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16. You're familiar with 5.19-23, through 23, the deeds of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. But before that, it says, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And then he goes on to say, verse 19 through 23, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's talking to Christians. And he's saying to a Christian, even though once you get hooked up to the Internet, you can still choose to operate based on your little 12-gig hard drive, which I know is old-timey. It's way more than that now. You can choose to still operate on your own independently of God, even though you're hooked up to the Internet. You have a choice now to walk by your flesh or to be led by and controlled by the Spirit. You can do your own thing and walk independently of God and operate based on your computer program and your past and your history and your emotions, or you can be led by and controlled by and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you walk by your flesh, your old program, you'll have a certain outcome. Certain things will show up. If you are controlled by the Holy Spirit and walking under the power of the Holy Spirit being filled with the Holy Spirit on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis, you'll have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what God showed me many years ago as I was studying about this is that verse 516 is the key to understanding this whole thing. Because it's not just a matter of turning the switch on and off. Like one moment I walk by my flesh, the next moment I walk by the Spirit. Why do Christians that are hooked up to the Internet not exhibit more of the fruit of the Spirit in their life? Why is it that they can't control their anger? Why is it that they they seem to be filled with the Spirit on Sunday and an hour or two later it all leaked out? What 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 is that? What, are they saved and then not saved? No, I don't believe that. So what does it mean? You go back and you look at verse uh, 5.16, it says, but I, but I say, walk by the Spirit, 
if you look at the tense of the verb, what it really means, it would be better translated to say, walk by the Spirit as a habit or a way of life, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh as a habit or a way of life. That totally changes everything. What it's really saying is, it's like, okay, I'm hooked up to the Internet now. But I don't really know how to use the Internet. Okay, I just got hooked up. I don't know how to go on the Internet and find things. I mean, before you ever started doing that, some of y'all still don't know. But but a lot of you are savvy, but at one time you didn't know. You bumbled around. You didn't know how to get to certain things. You didn't know how to use a search engine. You know, you didn't know. You, you had to, in order to, even though you were hooked up to the infinite resources on the Internet, you had to spend time online in order to learn to access the Internet's power, right? In the same way a Christian who gets hooked up to God through Christ doesn't just automatically just, boom, you know, grow into maturity and walk by the Spirit all the time or act like they have the Holy Spirit living in them all the time. It has to do with if you connect with and surrender to and spend time with God via the Holy Spirit as a habit or a way of life, the more and more you do that, the less and less you will walk by your flesh as a habit or a way of life. The more time I spend online connecting with God through prayer, through meditation, through fasting, through reading my Bible, through just sitting and listening to Him speak into my life, experiencing His presence, connecting with Him, and all of the spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible, praying, fasting, uh, meditation, worship, serving, all of those things, don't miss what they're about. They're not to get approval from God. They're not like we do these things and then God's pleased with us or we, do these, we don't do these things and God's not pleased with us. The purpose of every single one of them is to connect with God. The purpose of every single one of them is so that we can have more of Him and His power and His life in us and more of a relationship with Him on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. So that if we walk by the Spirit, if we're connected to the Spirit, surrendered to the Spirit on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis as a habit or a way of life, we will exhibit the deeds of the flesh less and less and less as a habit or a way of life. It ain't no mystery. Be filled with the Spirit means be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Connecting with God on a regular basis. No man or woman is greater than his devotional life, his connect time with God. George Barnes said less than 10% of people, evangelistic, church-going, born-again Christians, less than 10% have a regular connect time with God. That means if this is a church of a thousand people come on Sunday, less than a hundred of them are connecting with God on a regular basis. The rest of them are living on regurgitated food by the pastor. He goes and connects with God. He spits it out on Sunday. You eat it. It lasts for about two hours. You don't even remember what he talked about the next day. And you expect to walk by the Spirit and exhibit the deeds, I mean, the, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It ain't going to happen. That's not what God wants. I mean, he, don't, he wants a relationship. He wants to be walking with you every day, all day long, talking, connecting, experiencing Him, and growing in relationship with Him, just like you grow in relationship with your spouse, your children. A relationship, a friendship, anyone. Then you'll start experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in your life more and more. No man or woman is greater than his devotional life. If you heard it said, if you miss one day alone with God, you know it. Or no, God knows it. If you miss two days alone with God, you know it. If you miss three days alone with God, everybody else knows it. So be filled with the Spirit. Now, I want I want to check back. Let's check back with, let's check out Caleb. Because you remember Caleb, his, his dad led him to the Lord. And he surrendered his life to Christ 20 days into the love there. 
And let's check out uh, what happened to him after that and how his perspective changed from that first little shot that we got. Waffle time. Hey, man. I'd like to talk to you about something. What's that? Well. Hey, Cap. I think, I think B-Ship's trying to pull a joke on us, man. Salt and pepper shaker won't come apart. Hey, toss him my beer. Hey, thanks, man. Uh, don't forget to mop the kitchen after breakfast. Yes, sir. You want to tell me something? Uh, it's about your faith. My faith? Yeah. What about it? Well, I'm in. You're in? Yeah, I'm in. Now, are you saying that you want to be in? I'm saying... I'm in. You're really in. I'm really in. Because you can't be half in and say you're in. You got to be all in, brother. I'm saying I'm all in. Oh, Caleb, I can't believe it, man. <laughs> you're yeah. my brother. <laughs> I mean, brother? Yeah, man, you're my brother from another mother. But now we got the same father. What? Uh, I'll explain it to you later, man. This is awesome. Does Catherine know? Uh, no. No, I, uh, I don't think she'd care right now, to tell you the truth. <laughs> She hasn't been taken too well to this whole love dare thing. But you're not done yet, right? No, I'm day 21 out of 40. But I'll be honest with you. Up to this point, my heart's not been in it. That's what matters. A woman can tell when you're just going through the motions. That's absolutely right. And let me ask you a question. Go ahead. How did you get off to such a good start with Tina? I mean, why is it so easy for you? Well, it's not always been easy. Marriage takes work, man. Tina is an incredible wife. But we learned a lot of lessons the hard way. Well, at least you haven't had to face divorce. I wish that were true. What does that mean? You and Tina have been struggling that much? Not me and Tina, but I deal with my first wife. What? You were married to someone before Tina? For one horrible year. I got married for the wrong reasons, then I turned around and got a divorce for the wrong reasons. Man, I thought I was just following my heart. Michael, I have worked with you for five years. You've never told me that. Because I'm not proud of it. It was before I gave my life to the Lord, and man, I was just only concerned about my rights and my needs. Man, I ruined her life. But when I gave my life to God, I tried to find her, but she had already remarried. So believe me when I tell you I got a big scar. Man, God meant marriage to be for life. That's why you got to keep your vows to Catherine. You got to beg God to teach you how to be a good husband. And don't just follow your heart, man, because your heart can be deceived. But you got to lead your heart. My translation, be led by the Spirit. Let's look at the rest of this passage. I want to read the next several verses and make three more points. Verse 18 through 25. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making music in your heart to the Lord, always thanking God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. can be kind of a tough passage to teach, particularly because of verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Part of the problem is some of you husbands think you are the Lord. (laughs) You ain't all that. (laughs) 
You know what the problem here is? How many of y'all know or have heard, if you looked at the original manuscript, that the word submit does not appear? How many of y'all knew that? Raise your hand. If you looked at the original Hebrew manuscript that was translated into English, what it says is, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. You say, well, Dully, that's how I know that male chauvinists interpreted and translated the Bible because they went and added that word, and it wasn't there. They added it. If you looked it up in an interlinear Bible, which lists the Hebrew text and then the English words that are translated, you can see exactly how they translated it. Each word has a number, and you can look up the number, and it gives you the definition. You would see the number 9999 under the word submit, which means it's not there. It was added by the translators. The fact that it was not there, you say, well, that's not right. It's right. It, it was added because it's implied. But the fact that it was not there, that it's not there, tells us something very important about the context of that verse and the context of the whole passage and gives us even a deeper meaning of it, which is not often taught. So just bear with me a minute. I want to just teach you something about the English language. I don't know very much about it, so I'm not going to speak a long time about it, maybe 30 seconds. Someone explain this to me. You see the word be filled? Be filled is a verb. Okay? And then those I-N-G words, speaking, singing, thanking, submitting, put that up on the screen if you don't mind, the verses. Verse 18 through 22. See how it says... Uh, that's put up 19. 19 through 22. See, it says, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music to your heart in the Lord. Next verse. Always giving thanks to the God, the Father, and everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next verse. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, actually, if you look up those words, speak, sing, thank, submit, they're all I-N-G words, meaning it's, they're participles. Speaking, singing, thanking, and submitting. And participles are always dependent upon the verb. The verb here is be filled. So not only grammatically, but it means scripturally that everything that follows be filled is dependent on be filled. Everything that follows in the passage is dependent upon verse 18. Okay? So you, you'd read it this way if you read it the way that it probably would be properly translated. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking, singing, thanking, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. So point one is be filled with the Spirit. Point two is second command to both the husband and the wife is submit to one another. In other words, laying down your life for one another. You remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 4? We, we went through that. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, what this whole passage is assuming, when it gets down to wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church, it's assuming that both people are filled with the Holy Spirit and being led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. And then that they're both submitting one to another, which means that they're laying their lives down for one another. They're both loving one another just as Christ loved. That I'm, I'm, I'm considering my spouse's needs is more important than my own. She's considering my needs is more important than her own. We're both submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're both submitted to the Word of God as our policy and procedure manual. We're both being filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. We're laying down our lives for one another. And in that context, the wife submits to the husband. Doesn't that kind of change the meaning of it? You see, in that context how much submitting is really necessary. 
It would only be necessary in rare cases when we disagree. My practical steps, and this is on your outline that you're going to get. They're also going to put it up on the screen. My practical steps for how to live this out, what this would look like, like if, if a husband and a wife, you know, because we don't always see eye to eye, male, female, you know, different personalities, you know, women are right 96.5% of the time, not quite as much as Rush Limbaugh. But uh, my wife reminded me of that today, that she's right most of the time. Hardly ever is she wrong. Um, we don't see eye to eye on everything. So how do we get unified when it comes to parenting, money, where we live, the in-laws, and all that other stuff? What do we do with all that? There are some exceptions, but these are just six basic steps that you can follow to reach unity. How you would live this out in real life. Considering headship, submission, submitting one to another, what would that look like? If you got a decision to make, and you know, you're trying to make the right decision, the first thing you should do is pray and seek God's will. Before you discuss finances, before you discuss what to do about this kid, before you discuss what to do about uh, mama or papa or this family member that just sent you a bad email or put a post on Facebook, maybe you, maybe you might ought to pray about it. Might be a good idea. Second thing you ought to do about it is ask, what does God's word say about this? What principles in the Bible? Maybe there's not a verse in the Bible that says exactly, but what does God's word say about it? Your mindset ought to be that. Number three, check with the other side of your brain, your spouse. You ever heard two heads are better than one? It doesn't mean you take turns being the head. It just means if you put your, you know, if, if you're emotional and I'm logical, or if, if you're one temperament and I'm another temperament, or you're a softy and I'm a hearty, and we put our heads together and we both kind of give our input and both hash things out, wouldn't it stand to reason that we'd probably make a better decision? There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. One of the counselors God gave you is your spouse. Do you ever listen to them? Do you ever, you know, do you ever check it out with them and, you know, say, what do you think about this before you make a decision? Not just to get a rubber stamp approval that you're going to do what you're going to do. You already made your decision and you go and ask them what they think and you don't really care what they think. You're just doing it because Dudley said to do it and it's the right thing to do, but you really plan on doing what you want to do anyway. That's not submitting one to another. When you get married, you cease to be one and you become, I mean, you cease to be one individual doing your own thing. You become a unit. You become one flesh. So you can't just do whatever the heck you want to do when you want to do it, whether you're a male or a female. That's what it means to submit one to another. So you pray about it. You check, ask what does God's word say about it. You check with the other side of your brain, your spouse. Number four, if you still don't agree, seek godly counsel. Certainly there are godly people in your life that know both of you that are committed to your well-being that could speak to this issue, that might have some input. And then you stir that in the pot. Number five is you continue to pray about it, discuss it, and try to come to an agreement. That, that's the best scenario. I don't want to go do something that my wife is totally against, and I would hope she wouldn't want to go do something that I'm totally against. I don't want to do that. I don't want to you know, say, I'm the head, we're going to do this. If she's totally 100% against it, which brings me to number six. If, if, if we get to that point, and I think we should do this, and she thinks we should do that. Personally, my option would be to wait on the Lord to make the way clear. Like, if you really want me to go this way, Lord, get my wife on board. Speak to her heart. So we don't have to do this totally out of sync. Or... This is the part where the submission comes in. If a decision must be made, the husband makes it and the wife submits. Why? Because the husband's smarter? No. Because he's more valuable? No. Because he's superior? No. Because that's what God said to do. Somebody's got to make a decision. The, and, and the one exception that I have come to believe, and I can't teach on this, is in the case of stepchildren. Okay? In the case 
of children from prior marriages, I think that the biological parent should be the head of their children and the non-biological parent should submit, take the role of the wife when it comes to dealing with those children. Until there have been years of relationship built and much work done in forming a relationship. You can't just come in and say, I'm the head and y'all need to submit to me when their mother has had a relationship with them three times as long as they've had with you and they don't even know you. It's unrealistic. Okay, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Probably get in trouble for that too, but that's just an exception. There are some exceptions. Colossians 3.18 says, Submit, wives, submit as is fitting in the Lord. Submitting doesn't mean putting up with abuse. It doesn't mean tolerating brutality. It doesn't mean submitting to sin. Sometimes wives need to stand against those things in holy disobedience. So there's a lot more in the book. That's why I want you to get the book. Points 3 and 4 are the summation of the passage. Verse 26 through 33, let me just read it. This is continuing, love your wives as Christ loved the church, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it. He nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And then this next verse is a virtual impossibility if you live in southwest Louisiana. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united, which means cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I have a whole chapter in the book on leaving mom and dad, which I say is a virtual impossibility in southwest Louisiana. And then verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Point number three, husband, love your wife. And the key here is just as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? I have a whole chapter in the book on that. It means as a man, you're more concerned with your responsibilities than your rights. Christ was the head of the church to meet the needs of the church, not to lord it over the church. It means serving your wife. Love wears a towel to the throne. It means sacrificing your life for your wife. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. It means unconditional love. When you're wrongly accused, nailed to the cross, stripped naked, spat on, fist in the face, your response, Father, forgive her. She knows not what she does. Do you love your wife that way? Then it says in verse 33, the summation, your husband love your wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. There's two types of respect. One that is not earned, and one that is earned. The one that we think about when we think of respect is you need to earn my respect. There is a type of respect that's earned. It's trust. Trust is a synonym. When you say, I don't respect you, what you really mean is you say, I don't trust you because of the way you've acted. But this type of respect has nothing to do with that. This is a respect, just like love and forgive is a commandment. This is a, this is a commandment. To treat someone with respect has to do with the way that you Treat them regardless of the way that they treat you. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So if your husband is off track, if he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, he's not going to be won over. It says he's going to be won over be submissive to him and, and, and be chaste and respectful. In other words, be Christ-like and treat him with respect and be submissive to him so that he may be won over how? With many words? It says no, without a word, which is the exact opposite of what most women do. They use many, 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 many words to try to win him over. 
This says, no, you're not going to win them over. If you're going to win them over, it's going to be without a word. As you act like Christ, as you treat them with respectful ways, as you respond to them in godly ways, as they see Christ in you, that's your best chance of winning them over. Not browbeating them, not trying to convince them or cajole them or manipulate them or talk to them over and over and over and over and over and over again. For God's sakes. In that song that Aretha Franklin made popular, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, tell you what it means to me. All I need is just a little respect, just a little bit. At the On the heels of the women's movement, did you all know that that's not a woman's song? That song was written two years prior to that by Otis Redding as a desperate cry to his wife. All I need is a little bit of respect. Why do you think it says to the husband, love your wife? And it says to the wife, respect your husband. Because the husband, desperate need is respect. What, what husbands need most is respect. What wives need most is love. So it tells the wife to respect her husband because that's what the husband needs the most. And it tells the husband to love his wife because that's what the wife needs most. When the wife doesn't feel loved, she becomes very disrespectful. When the husband doesn't feel respected, he becomes very unloving. And you know what? Family life has got a course, a seven-week course that's starting next Thursday night on love and respect, which was a book written by Emerson Egridge, a whole book on this one topic. And I'm telling you, it's one of the most powerful books that I've ever read. And he talks about how to stop this crazy cycle. Because the crazy cycle is, I don't feel respected, so I act unloving. You don't feel loving, so you act disrespectful. How do you break that? If you're interested in that, they got a sign up out towards the left under that sign. they got a sign up out there. They're going to start this next Thursday night from 6.30 to 8.30. Uh, in a, an adjacent building, probably about 50 to 80 or 100 people, you'll watch a DVD of him, the man, teaching an actual seminar. He does these weekend seminars. There'll be like a 45-minute to an hour teaching, and then you'll have an opportunity to discuss as a big group, and then there'll be tables where you can discuss at a table where you just talk about topics from that, that uh, seminar. And I'm telling you, I just highly recommend, if you've enjoyed this, Take it one step further, because I have not been able to do justice to this. If you can't do that, at least get, get my book and read the chapters pertaining to the, the wife and the husband and do the challenge points that you'll find on your outline. But one or the other, do one or the other, or both. If you can, do both. This will absolutely radically change your life and your marriage. It is one of the most powerful concepts that I've ever heard that I've, that's made a difference in my life and Michelle's life and our marriage and in countless marriages that I've, that I've worked with. This whole thing about love and respect and finding your way to navigate around it. Okay, we're going to close with one more little three-minute clip, and we actually will close on time tonight. This is at the end, and this shows you what the power of God can do in a person's life and in a marriage. What kind of love is possible? This, this shows it. I've experienced this. I've been the recipient of it. And I've seen it work in people's lives. Behavior speaks a lot more loudly than words. Amen? Watch this. You have breakfast already? Yes. What'd you eat? I had the last bagel and a yogurt. Are you planning on making a grocery trip soon? Caleb, you work 24 hours and then you're off for 48. You've got more time to go than I do. Hey, I just asked you a simple question. You don't need to get smart with me. You could at least save me some breakfast. Well, I never know when you're coming home or going out. You don't tell me these things. Catherine, what is your problem? Did I offend you by walking in the door this morning? 
No, you just can't expect me to work every day and still get the groceries while you sit at home looking at trash on the internet and dreaming about getting your boat. You chose to take this job, and no one said you had to work full time. We need the income, especially since you took away a third of your salary saving for a boat we don't need. You've got $24,000 in savings, but we have things in our house that need fixing. Like what? The back door needs to be painted, the yard needs better landscaping, and I keep telling you I want to put more shelves in the closet. Those are called preferences, Catherine. Those are not needs. There's a difference. If you want to spend your money on that stuff, go ahead, fine. But I've been saving up for my vote for years. You're not taking that from me. This is so pointless. I don't have time for this. Yeah, shut the door on your way out. Hello, Mrs. Holt. How are you today? Fine, thanks. I hope your parents are doing well. I'll tell you what, that new bed and wheelchair is certainly helping. I'm so glad. Well, what can I do for you today? You know, I just need to pick up a few linens for the hospital bed for my mom. Sure, we have some in stock. Great. That's about the only thing that wasn't covered by the doctor when he purchased that bed and wheelchair. The doctor? Yes, Dr. Keller, our secret philanthropist. Uh, I don't think Dr. Keller covered those things. No, I'm sure he did. I spoke with him about it. Mrs. Holt, if I remember correctly, $24,300 was given for the bed and wheelchair, but Dr. Keller was not the main giver. What? Of the amount given, Dr. Keller gave $300. Then who gave the other? Your husband. Caleb. He came in about two weeks ago and paid for everything. I assumed you knew. Two weeks ago? Yes, he told me not to tell anyone, but I didn't think that included you. It was the Tuesday before last. He called and asked what the price of a particular bed and wheelchair were, and I looked it up and Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll take what was shared tonight and you'll work it out in their lives. That that you who began a good work in them will carry it through to completion. I pray that... uh, you would help them to work it out, to, to do this course, to do further study, to apply these truths, to achieve this mission that seems so impossible, to, to love our spouses, to stay with them for life, uh, for better or worse, in sickness or in health, for rich or poor till death, that we would be a living testimony, that we would be a light, that you would help them to be filled with your spirit, to, to submit, to learn to submit to one another out of reverence for you, that you would help husbands to love your wife, their wives, and that you would help the wives to respect their husbands. And I pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.